You found the Sassy Thoughts Podcast, the place for anyone who works at a tech company from startup to scale up. Where we help you get ahead of the trends that affect your work and life so you can make better decisions about how to spend your time and money. Today, Matt, we're talking about ransomware, quantum computing, and you have some opinions about digital art NFTs. I think you might be a big fan or, or wait, maybe a big anti-fan. Well, anyway, we're going to get into this. And I wanted to start by talking about ransomware. Do you know what ransomware is, Matt? I do. It's terrifying. That's about that's as much as you need to know. It's terrifying. What is ransomware, Sam? Let's explain it. Okay. So basically some hackers want some money. Okay. And what they do is they get into your systems and they encrypt a bunch of your data. And they say, hey, if you want access to any of this data, maybe it's your customer records, your billing systems, who knows, your ERP systems, that's enterprise resource management, you know, the backbone of a lot of big companies. If you want access to this stuff again, no problem. We'll give you, all you need is the, uh, the uh, sort of encryption breaking key that we happen to have. It's just going to cost you, uh, I don't know, $5 million, usually in, in uh, Bitcoin, because that's the, the easiest way to get it. But it's not always been the case. Um, and so this has been going on ransomware, obviously it's, it's a ransom on your, your company's data and your company's systems. And this is happening so much and it's in so many headlines lately. I mean, this has been going on for years. I remember going back into like, you know, 2015, 2016, starting to get a sense that this was happening, but boy, lately it's been in the news because of the colonial pipeline hack. Did you see this? This happened. First of all, I didn't even know a colonial pipeline was, I'd never heard about it. And I read a, uh, until this, this headline happened that's on the, the wall street journal, um, they were happy to keep it that way. The Wall Street Journal, there was a quote by the CEO who was like, we were very happy that nobody knew what our company did um, until this hack. And now we're out and everybody knows about us. But yeah, boy, um, it actually shut them down for days. In fact, uh, you know, they, they ended up paying the ransom, over $5 million paid to this hacker group uh, based out of, they think, based out of Eastern Europe. And you know, uh, it's also happened as well recently with Ireland, Ireland's public healthcare system also um, suffered a similar fate. This has happened in hospital systems in the US too and different companies. Probably happens, if I, if I had to guess, it happens even more than we hear about. Probably a lot of companies are just quietly paying ransoms and not telling anybody. What do you make of this? Yeah, 100%. I mean, where they're getting uh, smart is Colonial, uh, for those who don't know them, uh, apparently uh, supply 45% of the East Coast's uh, processed uh, fuel needs, so putting petrol in the car. Uh, and so I think where ransomware is going, which is spooky to me, is they've figured out that they'll attack critical infrastructure uh, companies like healthcare systems, uh, fuel pipelines. So they really can't sit around and think about it and twiddle their thumbs and decide, oh, should we pay it? Should we not? Because you know, there's one thing to say, hey, listen, if you don't pay this ransom, we're going to release all this private data into the dark web. That's one thing. But it's another thing to say, oh, by the way, we just shut down your healthcare system. There's a few people who pay attention to that. So, so yeah, I, I think it's spooky. Um, and I, I, I don't think there's um, much to know or do about it, except that you know people need to invest heavily in hardening their perimeters. It's one of the reasons why the cybersecurity space is so hot right now. Um, it's on fire. Um, and especially in a distributed work environment where there are lots of um, sort of what they call the edge uh, of your edge network problems where you're sitting at home and you don't have that hardened security like you do when you're sitting inside the house and people don't use their VPNs as they should every time they connect to the corporate network. 
So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big problem. Are you laying awake at night worrying about it, Sam? Well, you know, I just wonder why it is that it seems so weird to me. Like, what is it that it's just sort of an extra spookiness factor to it? And I think it's the remote nature. It's almost like there's this dark army of psychics out there who can use like telepathy to just shut down our infrastructure until we, we meet their demands. And like right now, the demands seem to be mostly money. But I could imagine state actors doing this as a sort of a retaliation for uh, acts of war or maybe instead of in lieu of an act of war, like making actual political demands. I've not heard of political demands yet, but that's got to be coming, right? Well, I think um, what's going on now is you'll see a lot of these these you know actors are actually uh, proxies uh, for states, they say. We can't prove it. We don't know. But, but in some cases, they've got a pretty high uh, fair idea that they are. Uh, the issue with doing what you just said, which is sort of the explicit demand, is now you're basically, it's a declaration of war, isn't it? Um, you know, issued digitally. So if they can kind of disrupt infrastructure, cause chaos, uncertainty, fear, a, a certain political climate without being directly in front of it, uh, that's really effective and doesn't typically have the consequences. Because one of the things the United States are saying is, well, look, we need to retaliate so people are scared to do this. So you you use a proxy, sure, but we know it's you. So we're going to come back and hit you hard too. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, well, yeah. I don't know what to do about it personally. I mean, I just kind of, I think maybe on a personal level, some of the things you might want to do is, is have a think about who you're sharing your personal data with. Um, you know, are you personally hardened, so to speak? Oh, that sounds weird. But are you like, <laughs> are oh, Sam, you how exposed? I really you? didn't think you were going to go there. But anyway, all right, moving along. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I agree. Uh, they need yeah. to. We need to figure that out. But actually, that sort of you know segues nicely, I think, into the next topic, which is: Will there come a time when it's next to impossible to secure everything? Because there have been some recent announcements about the promising developments in quantum computing, and we don't need to get all nerdy on that. But let's let's just summarize it by this. Um, that you know, quantum computing uh, uh, multiplies by a logarithmic factor uh, the speed at which processing can be done in, cu- uh, can, uh, in computing power. So Sam, you've done a little bit of reading about this. What's your observation? What's happening? And let's talk about the implications for security and a few other things. Sure. Like I, I'm with you. I mean, we're not going to get super technical on this. I can't even claim to, to start to wrap my head around what quantum computing really is. Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, it's just all about increasing computing power. I mean, computing power has always been increasing, but you hit certain inflection points that have you know, widespread ramifications. And, and quantum computing is definitely expected to be one of these, but it's hard to predict. Like, how can you predict the, the ramifications of like a much faster processor? I actually caught up with my older brother recently, asked him his take. He's a senior principal engineer. He's been in IT for, for decades. And I asked him what it was, was like to, uh, to witness tech progress in the computing space. And he said, you know, it really, it, it felt like in the 90s, things accelerated very quickly, but then it, it kind of plateaued. And the emphasis went from an increase of individual computing power to more like horizontally scaling computing power to where instead of like being able to ch- run one chunky process faster, um, you know, since the 2000s, from his perspective, it's really been more about running many things at once, right? Um, but you know, with the advent of quantum computing, we're gonna see an increase. He actually likened it more to the, uh, like the biggest spike that he noticed in quality of computing and, and changing the, the way that they could, uh, they could uh, you know, do their work in IT. Solid state drives, mm. from his perspective, were hugely mm. impactful because 
you know, you could dramatically increase the performance of even an old computer by just slapping a, a solid state drive in there, especially as the cost of those has gone down, it's made a really big impact. Well, quantum computing on the business side, Gartner, which, you know, is, is Gartner always on point? I'm not really sure. You could probably argue one way or the other, but they're, they're saying that by 2025, nearly 40% of large companies are expected to create quantum computing initiatives. This sounds big to me. I mean, this is for a concept that, you know, has only really been around in science fiction and documentaries and geeky journals to be expected to have almost half of large companies making investments in it within a few years. You know, it, it kind of makes you wonder what it, what it might cause. And a couple of theories about what it's going to do early on, the increase in computing power is going to be applied to things like chemical modeling. Apparently, mm -hmm. there's a lot of really tricky problems when you're trying to model compounds and chemicals, you know, because there's all so many different variations of these things that have to be computed in order to find formulas for, for example, better batteries. So they think this could lead to battery breakthroughs and pharmaceutical breakthroughs. Um, they think also that it has a lot of ramifications for cryptography. I mean, going back to ransomware, you know, uh, you can imagine right now, at least we're able to put things behind closed doors uh, by encrypting it in a way that would take, you know, current processors more time than the, 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 the rest of the time we have left in the universe, they think, in order to crack it. But if you have a quantum processor, they think that, that current uh, encryption is insufficient. You might be able to, to use a quantum computer to, to break through uh, standard, uh, even military grade encryption. And um, that might have a, a lot of ramifications. So there's a bit of an arms race going on from state to state, China, US, elsewhere, to try to be one of the first ones to really crack quantum computing because, I mean, there's obvious risk uh, by not being, uh, you know, the first one to show up with a, with a key that can unlock anything. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. Um, we'll talk in a few minutes about RSA's conference, but RSA is the uh, technology uh, cryptography um, nomenclature that most of us are familiar with. You know, back in the day, you'd have an RSA key, which would be like a physical piece of plastic with a LCD uh, display on it. It would change its numbers every few minutes, and then you'd use that to log into your bank account or whatever else. Uh, I was interested to find out RSA, I thought it would be, you know, some sort of technical, clever acronym. No, it's the three, the names of the three guys that invented the technology, which I thought was fascinating. Um, but in any case, yeah, having quantum computing uh, does theoretically, instead of taking, you know, hundreds of years to crack uh, the cryptography, they can bring it down to minutes in potential, right? Uh, potentially. So, so that, that, that develops a whole uh, set of other problems. And I wonder whether there'll be sort of a, a class issue here where uh, companies and individuals who can afford that level of cryptography to protect themselves relative to, to all, you know, the others, because um, the others will just get crushed. Uh, it'll be a bit like having a, a Windows machine with no antivirus or firewall protection on it. You know, people that are wandering and open the door whenever they feel like it. Um, so it's fascinating. And, and, and you know, to your point about Bitcoin, um, I did a little research on this and they reckon about 25% of all Bitcoin that's currently in circulation would be at risk to, uh, to quantum computing um, power because what it would do is you've got this public key right which and that sits there everyone can see it big string of letters and numbers and from that public key you can derive the private key which basically allows you into my wallet uh, and today that's too hard to solve can't be done but with quantum computing it could be done it could be essentially reverse engineered if that's the correct term for it so then what 
then what? So, you know, between now and 2025 or 2030 or whenever these things really kick off, um, there needs to be some work done to figure out how people protect um, uh, their, their, their digital currency. And, and, and it can be done um, uh, by, by storing your money in a different way. It's just that most people, ma and pa, who decide to dip their toes into crypto for the first time, don't know that. So, you know, interesting idea. Like I remember, and, and Matt, you probably remember even better than I do, uh, at the advent of the internet, the idea of even transacting over the internet was just considered to be absurd. You know, like, why would you give anyone your, your credit card number? That is the most unsafe thing you can do. Of course, now everyone does it every day, multiple times a day, and nobody thinks anything of it. But with quantum computing and even with ransomware, I wonder if we're going to witness some kind of movement to sort of decouple uh, personal information from the internet. I mean, are people going to go back to physical storage devices that they keep in their pockets, for example, or maybe even their phones? Um, in some way that is not accessible to the outside internet, at least until the dust settles from quantum computing. Well, I have to wonder. I think it's hard to predict for now. It's interesting. I mean, as you know, there's the you can have a physical vault, right, on a thumb drive, and there's lots of famous stories about those folks that early stage in Bitcoin <laughs> put their stuff on a thumb drive. It went out with the trash, and somewhere floating around is twenty million dollars in Bitcoin that will never be found again. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Maybe there will be this decoupling. It'll be interesting. But I also like the way that you managed to slip in there that I was around when the internet was invented and I'm not of this digital age. Thank you, Sam. Probably a good point to move on to my uh, old man Luddite topic favorite thing right now, which is digital non-fungible tokens. And let's, uh, let's be very specific here. Something that really gets me excited is when somebody produces a piece of digital art, you know, they basically jump on Photoshop and make something nice. Uh, and then they say, well, tell you what, I am going to sell ownership of this because that's what it is, right? It's basically, it's not the thing itself. It's basically the, the pink slip, if you will, to say that Sam is the licensed owner of this thing. Um, and he can, he got bragging rights to that, right? We've touched on this in the past. Um, However, I can go on the internet anywhere I like and copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. And now I can stick it on my screensaver. I can do it whatever I want. So it's not like owning the Mona Lisa, right? Because you can't have the physical Mona Lisa in two places at once until we solve that technical problem. Um, you can only have, you know, a cheap uh, copy of it. So <laughs> I thought I was nuts because the way I think about it is that it's essentially the greater fool theory, right? So when... And again, all right, I'll, I'll let you have this one, Sam. I was around when uh, personalized plates first came out for your car, right? And we all got very excited about putting Matt C or whatever on the back of the car because that was considered cool until everyone realized that was kind of a dick move. But uh, what happened was, um, you know, certain number plates became extremely valuable. So, for example, the number eight. Uh, and in China, it's considered to be very lucky. Uh, and so the Chinese community uh, would bid that thing up. And I remember in the very early 90s, late 80s, they were selling these things for a few hundred thousand dollars, right? And you need to remember that it, even at least with that, there's only one car in your state or your country that can have the number eight. So there, there is some real value because you can show that you're wealthy enough to do that. And essentially for me though, it's similar to NFTs and that the only reason that I make money out of that is someone is prepared to pay more money than I was for something that doesn't actually have any tangible worth. So it's a bit like a fiat currency. It's not connected to under any underlying value. NFTs in my world are even more ridiculous because 
you can have the same image of the Mona Lisa as I do, but I just happen to claim that I own it. And so the long story, the, the RSA conference uh, just, just occurred and a bunch of uh, experts were sitting there, cryptography experts who you know, and all around this stuff. And they're basically saying to the, came to the same conclusion as I am, which is they're stupid uh, and they're based <laughs> on the greater fool theory. What do, you, what do you think? Am I just being fuddy-duddy old guy? I think so, kind of, for a couple of reasons. One is, as you and I know, Matt, we are in sales. Things are only ever worth what people are willing to pay, right? So you can kind of look at literally anything on the market and say that you know the value is kind of a, a version of the greater fool theory. You know, you can have a SaaS product for, that uh, you know two SaaS products, for example, that do the same things. But if people are, you know, view one as being a more premium brand or something, they'll pay more. I mean, there's a lot of variations of this. Um, even the Mona Lisa, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of paint on a canvas, right? But the story about it and the history behind it is what people are excited about. But, you know, if tomorrow they find out something about the Mona Lisa, it turns out it was actually painted by Leonardo's brother or whatever, then, you know, that's going to definitely affect what people are willing to pay. I think NFTs are similar. I could see it going in either direction. Um, I'm not exactly bullish on it. I'm not sure if NFTs are going to be like the next big thing. Um, but you know, I do, I am sympathetic to what you're saying, but, um, yeah. and, and yeah. I want to call out the distinction here. NFT is a mechanism for fractional ownership of something that you can then sell as a thing. I get it. So like NFTs are a very useful way of saying, look, here's a baseball card that I could sell to one individual, but we're going to basically split it up into equivalently shares, right? And we can all buy these non-fungible tokens that, you know, maybe there are a hundred tokens that represent ownership of this thing. And at some point we sell this baseball card to, you know, Elon Musk or someone who gives a shit about baseball cards for a lot of money. I get it. I get it. But to have, to only own the ownership or the rights to say you own it without the ability to have a physical thing that can be transferred kind of blows my mind. Anyway, that's my old man rant. Um, and uh, probably a really good time though, to talk about something fun. So how about we talk about Sam's new thing? All right, Matt, well, we've talked about maybe the dark worrisome side of new technology. Let's end on a high note. Let's end with the promising future, something glowing and shiny in my world lately is a company called Copy.ai, Copy.ai. So this kind of on my radar a while back and I was a little intimidated to even try it at first. I don't know why. Um, I, I, I get intimidated sometimes to sit and to write out things. And this is a tool that is meant to help you write copy better. Copy is in like marketing copy, sales copy. You know, when you're trying to describe your product, just trying to narrow down your target audience and describe things in a way that's going to compel people to find it interesting and motivating, I mean, that's really tough to do. It's, it's, definitely, um, it's definitely a particular kind of writing that you have to nail. And copy.ai tries to solve this by giving you an ability to basically type in your sort of stream of consciousness perspective, if you will, on what your product does. Uh, what it's for. You can just sort of list out features and functionality. And what it does is it uses some, you know, sort of AI machine learning type technology on the back end to generate for you uh, detailed product descriptions, uh, you know, pain uh, solution statements and so on, things that you're, you could theoretically just copy and paste directly onto your website or into an email. And I saw some things on Twitter of some users showing examples 
of how they use it. And it really piqued my interest and got me excited to try it myself. And I did, and I was very pleased. So I see a lot of possibilities for this. First of all, there is a good and bad side, right? Like with anything, uh, you know, I see the good ramifications of technologies like this is it, it's very difficult. In fact, I think the, one of the more time consuming parts of my day are not necessarily getting my ideas written out in an email or, you know, a presentation, for example, but then massaging it, trying to think about my audience, trying to make the words like look good on paper and flow well. So if I could get to the point where I have something like copy.ai, I could just dump in all of my thoughts, all my like, you know, my, my things that I want to, to get across to my audience. And then the technology can do the work for me of wordsmithing it, of making it flow, of sort of creating a, a list or gobbledygook, if you will, into prose that sounds good. Boy, I mean, on the one hand, that's going to make my job a lot easier. I'm going to love the hell out of that. On the other hand, I don't know that it's going to make me a better writer or probably just make me a worse writer over time because this is sort of like an autocorrect on steroids, right? Yeah, it's true. I think autocorrect definitely diminished my ability to remember how to spell words. But what I'm just what's running around in my mind right now is the is the subcategory of content creation. I mean, I'm just seeing a whole bunch of uh, teenagers suddenly writing brilliant love letters uh, to their to their <laughs> their amours, uh, and then for me, look, a hundred, hundred, uh, I don't know how many times I thought, you know what, I really want to put the pen to paper and write a book. Do you know what? If I could just splurge the nonsense that comes out of my head uh, into some sort of structured format and it turns it into an Amazon bestseller, that would be nice. Can we do that, Sam? I think Hop.io is going to do that for me. Uh, oof, maybe for a premium. Well, we'll watch the space. Excited to see what happens. Try it out if you're, uh, you know, in a role where you write things for customers. <laughs> see what you think. Copy.ai. And I think that's a wrap for us this week, Matt. What do you think? I think so. And uh, next week, Sam, we're going to be off the air because you're going to be swimming with turtles and I'm going to be drinking chili infused chocolate, which maybe we should we should share details of next time we chat. So until next time, uh, take care, keep selling, and we'll see you soon. See ya.